This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Ride Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 170, recording on Tuesday, August 15th. Actually, I think that's August 16th, isn't that today? Yeah, uh, that's today. That's is today. the 16th. Uh, we're really this off schedule. I'm Jeff going? O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. We're a little late this week, uh, actually a couple of days late. We had scheduling hubris. Well, uh, we had a, some meetings in Portland. Rebecca and, and uh, our colleague Clint were in Portland at the end of last week when we normally record the show. And we thought, ah, we'll do it over here. It was hot. We've been in meetings all day, and we punted. We punted. Said we'll come back and we'll come back and get early next week. So thank you for your patience. Um, and if you weren't patient, I don't know what to thank you for. But here it is. <laughs> Just uh, pretend you were. Pretend. Yeah, pretend you, <laughs> You're going to get this podcast when we give it to you. You, you can <laughs> retcon your patience when you talk to us next. You can say you're really patient, even if you were furiously we updating your pod. We won't. Yeah, we won't know. I mean, I do know one thing with podcast clients. If you don't. If you don't get a podcast that you're expecting, you blame the podcatcher. I mean, that's sort of the, the mm-hmm. confidence we all have in the software around podcasts a lot of the time. And we have been good really about, you know, Monday mornings, depending on where you are, Monday mornings, the East Coast time uh, in the U.S. at least, you get a you really get the show. It's, it's really there 95% of the time right then so that when it's off schedule um, – People wonder, but we're okay. No meteor hit us. Uh, we didn't. We didn't fall into a well or anything like that. Um, we're here in I'm, Portland. I, I like that. Fall into a well was like the first option. Well, the meteor, because that's of course the most <laughs> likely thing is that we were most we got uh, struck simultaneously by two independent meteors. Um, I didn't just eat myself into chicken and waffles oblivion. Oh in yeah, Portland. we did. We did quite the Portland. Uh, the food tour, but the most importantly, well, actually, let's, let's do our first sponsor, All and right. we'll come back and we'll talk about uh, Rebecca visits pals. Um, PRH Audio is back this week, and we're talking again about tech and sci-fi. So, if you're looking for something new to listen to, Penguin Random House Audio is always working hard to record new sci-fi audio books for you. And this year, you're not going to be disappointed. Star Wars: Life Debt Aftermath by Chuck Windig. To Dark Matter by Blake Crouch, which is getting really great reviews. I think I'm going to pick that one up. It is up. all over the place. There was a bunch of them at BEA, and they had this weird cube display thing that kind of intimidated and angered me simultaneously. Um, but the reviews have been pretty good, and I'm looking for some more sci-fi to read myself. To the finale of Justin Cronin's trilogy, The City of Mirrors. Actually, the, the what's the, the trilogy called? It's just uh, called the Passage the, I think trilogy? it's just called the Passage trilogy. Yeah, and the, the last book is The City of Mirrors. That is not the name of the... Um, of the trilogy itself, but the last book, there's something to satisfy any intergalactic preference. Go to tryaudiobooks.com for a free audiobook to start listening. So thank you so much to them for sponsoring the show. Go find out a good sci-fi tech audiobook. So you made it to Pals. I did. Now, was it, was it better than you thought? It was what you expected? Was it, were, what, what's your general sort of uh, over-under on your experience of Pals? 
It was better than I thought. Um, I was telling you, I think, in the car on the way there that like I don't do much bookstore tourism really when I'm traveling. And I'm I think it's mainly just like I'm traveling and I'm doing something else and I don't want to think about work stuff. So usually I only visit bookstores when I'm traveling if they like if one is along the way or we happen upon one or whatever. Um, but these big bookstores that are like miles and miles of books and like this Powell's takes up a whole city block, I tend to find them over overwhelming, but also really underwhelming. Like there's that um, old joke, I think it's from Seinfeld. Somebody has a baby and Elaine looks at the baby and she's like, yep, that's a baby. <laughs> uh, like I often, you know, visit bookstores and like every bookstore is great, but it kind of gives me a like, yep, that's a bookstore. Right. Um, but Powell's, I was super impressed. I loved like, as you pointed out that they shelve new and used copies of the of one title together. So you don't have to go do like extra work. If you're looking for a used copy of a thing, if they have it, it will be right there next to the new ones. I thought the curation on the different themed tables in the front area was really well done and thoughtful. There were great titles. Um, there was a lot of diversity mm -hmm. in the displays, which is a thing that I look for. It wasn't all just, you know, faced out books by white people. And the thing that I liked really the most was that the sideline items for each kind of book were in the room that contained those books. There wasn't like a shopping area of Powell's and then mm -hmm. a, like the rest was books. Um, I loved and I talked about it on all the books this week, too, that like in the travel section, you know, you can pick up your guide to New Zealand and your map and then also pick up the inflatable neck pillow that you need for the <laughs> flight and the universal adapter for your power cords. So and when you move into a different room that contains different kinds of books, the sideline items that go with those are together. And it's I think it's a really smart sales strategy, but it's very helpful to a customer as well to be like, oh, are you traveling? Here are some travel things that you might need. Um, and just the wandering experience was very nice, like discovering different caps with different themes throughout the store. Um, it was I, I was very impressed. I really liked it. I could see like that having that as my home bookstore. It was really great. Um, yeah, one thing I was kind of trying to look at it with fresh eyes while we were wandering it together a little bit uh, over the weekend. And the end caps, when you're deep in the bookstore itself, um, mm -hmm. not just not just when you're in the front of store, and there's really two main entrance front of store places, you know, you're deep into like the sociology section. There are end caps with recommendations, you know, and yeah. there's, there's shelf talkers every. I mean, if you probably went and looked and counted the shelf talkers, oh, tons. There's, I mean, for the size of the store, it's really remarkable. It's something I hadn't really thought about before. I mean, there are pro there have to be thousands of them, I would guess. Oh, um, yeah, I would think so. And I, I don't know <clears throat> what the shelf life of those shelf talkers are, <laughs> um, but you know, it doesn't. It doesn't really. I mean. You know the what's, you picked up Geek Love, right? You're there. That you, yes. you hadn't read it before. Portland author. Right I don't there. even know what it's about. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. I, yeah, that, that's, no, I'm, I'm really happy about I'm, that. I'm uh, insanely jealous of that experience, actually. But yeah, the shelf talker for Geek Love can stay on there for years, right? It doesn't need to be right. uh, the stock doesn't need to be rotated for the shelf talker itself. It just moved around. So once it's done, you can use it for a while. But still, nevertheless, like. Um, a longtime book riot contributor and friend Kim Okura and her sister were in town, and we went to Powell's to, to wander around. And we were we were at the young adult section looking around, and the density of shelf talkers per shelf space for a bookstore of that size is really remarkable. Um, that does, I think, in some way counterman or excuse me counter uh, a observation you had, which is it's pretty hard to talk to staff at Powell. It's not hard to talk to them. But like you can go up and talk to them, but 
it's like there's enough there's enough space and enough there's enough books that the molecules aren't just going to bump into each other naturally like in yeah, a smaller it's, bookstore. It's not an intimate no, book buying no. experience where you're going to like become buddies with a particular bookseller who's going to hand sell you stuff and learn your taste. It's just too big for that, but right. I think you're right that the shelf talkers do counter or balance that in some way and they are they're not just staff shelf talkers like i took a picture um i snapchatted the whole thing so if you're mm. on snapchat and you didn't know book riot is on snapchat we are there, um, there. and i snapped our visit and I uh, snapped a shelf talker from Juno Diaz because they ask visiting authors to write shelf talkers for books that they love. And so you could discover those. They were all over in the stacks, not just in the front area of the store as well. And I noticed when I was in the poetry section that they were doing a like, if you loved this relatively well-known poetry collection, here's a shelf talker for a poetry collection that you'll probably also like, but also probably haven't heard of. Mm. Um, and I thought that was really smart. Um, that was the I only noticed it in the poetry section, but I don't know if that's the only place in the store that they do that kind of particular algebra about uh, title recommendation. But I thought that was great, um, especially because poetry, you know, doesn't get widely covered. Mm -hmm. And like, if you've read Citizen by Claudia Rankine, but you don't know what else is like that, um, it was it would be very useful to, you know, be able to just find your way to the poetry section and get that kind of recommendation. I think it's like that store is a famous, successful store for good reasons yeah. and it's just very thoughtfully run and I it really has like, it has I sort really of the like self-perpetuating momentum too and I, i've read a little about the history of the store and I, so i don't know if it started out as a big store or small store i should read more about that but it has its own inertia because it's a big store people like it and then they talk about it and sort of becomes a thing that you like mm -hmm. pals if you're from portland and you go there and destination another thing they do sort of well, i don't know if it's, it's not sneaky it's just underreported is they're really good about having really great current looking Powell's swag that yeah. you can wear by, you know, they got water bottles, they got coffee cups, bookmarks, backpacks, uh, hoodies, sweatshirts, jackets, scarves. Um, and I'm not just making this up. Like those are socks. Like they have mm -hmm. all those things that are Powell's branded. So it makes it very easy for you to wear your Powell's stuff out and around. And, you know, you see, I have a, I have a much beloved Powell's hoodies I've been wearing for years. Um, it looks a little dated now, but they've got new ones that are more uh, au courant, which since I'm a thousand years old, don't fit my style necessarily. <laughs> but, you know, they, they keep it fresh. Um, and they don't necessarily ha they have, they don't necessarily have one logo that they're sticking to. Like there's this very traditional script pals version, but they'll put it in a, a million different places. They have a lot of their own, they produce some of their own in-house sideline stuff. Like there's one that I saw that was like literary term notebooks where, you oh, know, yeah. there's a whole series that each of them has a different literary term at the, at the top. So um, it, it, it's very interesting. Like they, they use their scale to their advantage and they have some, they have really good online shopping experience too. So if you love pals and have an affinity for it, but you don't happen to live around it, live around there, you can buy new and used um, as they're in all the swag and they have gift stuff. I mean, it's just very, very smartly run, it seems to me. So um, that, that that's all way of saying, I, I don't know if it is the thing I was thinking about after we had been there and you and Clint had flown home about pals is, is it particularly well positioned to withstand the digital age? Like if you were going to build sort of the modern, the, the modern major general of a bookstore for mm. the digital age, would it look like Powell's? And I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that old days have huge selection with new and used next to it, is it? Or is it the curation? Or, like, what is the thing that could differentiate a bookstore 
from your Amazons, your iBooks, your Google Plays. It, you know, there's the, the basically your choices are all the way from a small independent bookstore on the seaside village in Maine to um, a star destroyer like Powell's. Like you have a bunch of choice. Like what would you do? There's some things about Powell's I think that are that are uniquely. It's able. It's it's a brand, right? It's a brand. It's yeah. a, it's for book lovers in North America. You've heard of Powell's. Um, now, whether you have affinity for it is a different thing. So I think that's one thing that's hard for individual bookstores to do is become a thing that people go to that they know about when they're in town. When they someone's going to Portland, they say, are you going to go to Powell's if they care about books? It's on the travel and you know guidebooks. Like this 36 hours in Portland, you know, there's this New York Times thing from a few years ago that's sort of famous for, you know, this is the, the Baedeker's European Guide of Portland. It's, it's Powell's is on there. And how, does, mm-hmm. how do you do that? You have to do something a little bit differently, um, as you say before, because I love independent bookstores, but I'm like you. If I'm traveling and there's another little independent bookstore, I'm not going to go out of my way because, to be honest, I have a pretty good sense of what that's going to be. Um, now, if I'm looking to spend an hour, that's a different thing, but I'm not going to go out of way, carve out part of my time to go see an independent bookstore just because you know, they, they, are, they usually are of a piece. Um, so unless there's something different about it. It, it doesn't become a destination. Anyway, long way of saying, um, I was right. Um, yeah, you as were. Always, uh, I had, well. Th- no, well, no, I'm, as always, I enjoy that. So we have to talk about that <laughs> for a few minutes. So I always get it. I always enjoy being right. Um, uh, if you, you know, if you have a bookstore that you've been to, um, that you've heard of, um, that you'd like to go to, you know, that, that sort of breaks the mold of either a, you know, a Books A Million, Strip Mall, Suburban, Barnes & Noble, you know, your I don't want run of the mill is, yeah, like, but you're you're familiar if independent if bookstores. If you've got a destination bookstore, yeah, you know that you know yeah. you know that you know what I'm talking about. The independent bookstore, it's got polished wood floors. Uh, it's playing probably Ellen Louis to get uh, Ellen Louis again. That CD of Ellen Ella Fitzgerald Louis Armstrong duets. Um, you know, it's got a friendly staff, white walls, books everywhere. You, you know the one I'm talking about. Um, if you've got one that we should think about checking out the next time we're traveling that breaks that mold. Um, let us know. Let us know. Okay. Well, that's, right. that's uh, the travel diaries of Jeff and Rebecca. Um, let's get into Take the, our show on let's the road. get the week of news. I guess the first thing is yeah. follow up. Uh, yeah, we got more Oprah news. Boy. Um, well, what, tell me the story. What's going so on? It's, well, you know, it's like news that's going to be news, but isn't mm. quite yet news because there's going to be another Oprah selection in September. Yes. And so there's this piece in the Wall Street Journal explaining that the the way that Oprah's book club is running now, they don't have a schedule for the selections. It's essentially like Oprah reads stuff and they, you know, do the book club whenever the book that she is reading and is excited about is coming out and to facilitate the ordering process, like the kind of the nitty gritty of how this works is more interesting to me than totally the, agree. the rest agree of it. Yeah. Um, the way it works is that the publisher assigns an ISBN to that title. So like most recently it was for the underground railroad by Colson Whitehead. Um, they make an ISBN for it. And then if you look up that ISBN, it says untitled by anonymous and Oprah's book club selection. And that's how bookstores are able to place their orders for whatever the Oprah's book club, book is going to be before it's announced. And so they get it in stock. And even the boxes say like Penguin Random House, Oprah's Book Club, here's the ISBN, untitled by Anonymous. And you don't know until you open the box 
what's in it after the announcement that ISBN gets, you know, I think it gets reassigned to the correct, um, you know, information for the title. So uh, we are finding out about this because booksellers are now able to place their orders for the fall season. And there is um, a a Macmillan title from uh, FSG, or no, it's a Macmillan title um, that has this treatment on it now, Mm -hmm. this ISBN that points at Untitled by Anonymous. And so now there's speculation about, it comes out on September 6th. Um, There is speculation about which... Macmillan book this is going to be. And so Macmillan has FSG, they have St. Martin's Press and Picador, Henry Holt and Flatiron books. Um, and there's, you know, some guessing in this Wall Street Journal piece. Um, they guessed that maybe it was Jonathan Safran Foer's new novel. Um, mm-hmm. But Four said no. Uh, they guessed that it was a debut that I've been hearing a ton about called The Story of a Brief Marriage by Anouk Andra Pragasam yeah. or um, but his agent basically said, no, she said, oh, God, I wish it were. Mm-hmm. Um, so the third guess is that it's Glennon Doyle Melton's new memoir, Love Warrior. Um, Melton is going to uh, she's scheduled to be on the Oprah Network. Um, or no, let's see. It's she appeared on the Oprah Network in 2013 for a previous book called Carry On Warrior and differentiating her uh publicist or uh, editor's Mm -hmm. response. Uh, This is Marlena Bittner says, I can't confirm or deny (laughs) anything about it, (laughs) which is its own, you know, essentially its own kind of confirmation. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, I mean, if you were silly enough to, to place wagers on this sort of thing, that looks like there's a bunch of smoke around that title. Yeah. Uh, a brief aside, that, that phrase, I can neither confirm nor deny, there was a great Radiolab episode about the origin of that phrase. Oh, really? Yeah, and I think, it, it, unsurprisingly, it came, comes out of military stuff, but mm. I think there was something about a missing submarine, um, and the, the pre- I, I think I, I might be messing this up, so forgive me if I am, but essentially... Some guy in the State Department's publicity corps came up with this phrase where someone asks you a question and it's a response. Like you're not just saying no comment. Oh. You're, so you're actually saying I can neither confirm nor deny, which it's like it's it's a really – it's one of the trickier rhetorical moves you can make. Um, you comment without commenting. Uh, it's like basically saying I am here. You know, it's just sort of like oh, yeah, <laughs> I acknowledge that things are things. Um, anyway, so yeah, I think – uh, also, another side note, if you ever wanted to um, get some sneaky sales, uh, publish your book, um, call it Untitled by Anonymous, and maybe some <laughs> booksellers will, will randomly uh, uh, It's like randomly accidentally having a title that matches a Stephen King title. Yeah. That woman we talked about. So mm-hmm. I, I have a another layer of speculation. I am wondering if the fact that this book comes out in September and the Colson Whitehead book was also supposed to come out in September had something to do with the cycling up of the publication of the underground railroad. Mm -hmm. Um, I read an interview with Whitehead yesterday. I think it was in vulture um, where he said, Oprah called like in March and since for, so for the last several months, people have been asking him like, Hey, publications coming up. How are you feeling? And he's been like, Oh, you know, it's fine. Mm. It's like, you can't tell anyone. I think his wife knew and you know, his, uh, agent and editor and obviously the publisher, but that's it. Like everyone else is sworn to secrecy and you have to go on pretending as if everything Called is just March? normal. Yeah. Wow, I'm pretty I sure that it was detail March. That was that early. Wow. I, I, it was, maybe it wasn't March. I'm pre- it was like March or May. It was really, it was like a while ago. Mm. 
And he's been just, you know, having to like tootle along, like nothing significant is happening. But I wonder if that was some of it too, if Oprah, like the before this, the last book that she had selected was Ruby, um, which came out in yeah. early 2015. And so I kind of wonder if she was like, hey, I love two books from 2016. They're both supposed to come out in September. What could we do to space, space them out? Yeah. And somehow they concluded this is I'm just guessing, but I, I think this is reasonable. Yeah. Um, you know, let's give them some space. How can I feature both of them? We need to keep them, you know, maybe six weeks apart from each other. So we'll do Underground Railroad in August. That that makes um, a lot of sense. I mean, it's from just the logically putting the pieces together. That's a scenario that seems mm-hmm. very plausible to me. I mean, of course, a lot of things are possible, but that certainly seems plausible. And Whitehead is as cool as a cucumber. Of all the people to keep a, a secret like that in the wraps, he seems like a particularly good fit. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think I, I think that the, the, I mean, besides the interesting details, um, whether or not Oprah is going to get back into the swing of this is super interesting to think yeah. about because um, she's it been is. out of the game for 18 months or so. And Oprah's Book Club 2.0, which is – she used to do it what, every month, like the original it version. Was, it was every month or every couple months. Like it was uh, Yeah, it like was a like clockwork. monthly or quarterly. I'm yeah. not sure. But yeah, there, there was a rhythm to it. And this one just much more follows her, her whim uh, and her particular interest, her particular passion for the title, which is it's, – it's much more like lightning striking. Mm-hmm. But it, it's notable. I, I was going to ask the listeners out there. I know we have international listeners – is Oprah picking a book a thing? Like if you're, I know, uh, Aaron in Australia or we've got a bunch of Ian in the, over in the UK, um, is, is Oprah a thing over there? Like does it make the news? Do you get a sticker on the books at Waterstones? Or yeah, whatever? does it, it matter at does all? Does it matter at all? Do you hear about this? I mean, because it could be that we're talking about complete rubbish, uh, as you would say, in the, in the colonies um, right now for you. And I'm, but I'm curious if, if Oprah's halo effect has any bleed over outside the the u.s here um let us know podcast at bookwire.com um i guess that segs nicely i guess into this this report that came out about bookstore sales being up mm-hmm. for the first half of 2016 up pretty big really uh up six one six point one percent in the first half of 2016 and that's following a growth of last year um, I was it last week or the week before we talked about that there's sort of uh, sluggishness in mm-hmm. adult fiction sales, especially yeah, new front list fiction, which means hardcover new releases. So despite that, bookstore sales are up pretty big for the first half of 2016. And I was diving into the numbers and I I can't figure out why I can't figure out yeah. why because this is before the Cursed Child came yeah, out. That's I cr- linked to this yesterday in Critical Link or. Was recently, and I said, and this is for Jan 1 through June 30th, and uh, there's no Cursed Child, which is going to have a huge effect. Right. And there's no Oprah pick no in Oprah June, pick, you know, yeah. up through June. There wasn't, we haven't had a book phenomenon. No, not really. This year. Not so really. maybe it's, you know, maybe it's not title related, right. um, but just, you know, the economy is not bad. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm struggling to. You can hear us struggling to, yeah. to come up with a reason. The economy hasn't been bad for a while, so I don't know why now it would be different. Um, I, I just – I don't have a good answer. There's been some yeah. good books. Like we talked about last time that When Breath Becomes Air has been a good seller. The Nest mm-hmm. has been a good seller, but nothing that's been a breakout. And some of the story that we've gotten from publishers over the last year about the lumpiness in sales, especially from like Harper, for example, um, is – 
you know, we had uh, Ghost at a Watchman last year, and then we had uh, uh, Divergent the year before. You know, like there were big titles that could move the needle, and once they were gone or the the long tail had had flattened out, then to do year over year comps didn't make a lot of sense. But with this one. It's really kind of comp to comp. It's just this yeah. has been growth over the time. And um, anyway, I, also weird that this is estimates from the U.S. Census Bureau. And I don't know why huh. they're in the business uh, of doing <laughs> of this. bookstore sales. Um, bookstore, the bookstore segment performed better than the entire retail segment. Sales huh, for okay. all retail rose 3.3% in June over the comparable month in 2015 and we're up 3.1%. Well. And in June, this says book sales were up 5%, but they're up 6.1% for the year. Uh, notably, even this Publishers Weekly report offers no explanation. Yeah, no one <laughs> of, knows. Uh, of why this might be. Um, and yeah, with Oprah, with Oprah having two picks in the fall, the fall book season, you know, I, I guess that would be you can't the year over year comps will be the same because it, it's also the holidays at the end of last year mm-hmm. and will be the same as this year. And then the curse child will follow briefly on that up to 3.3 million copies sold in print. Crazy now, town. In about 10 days. Um, just, just a remarkable run. Um, whatever I would have, you know, what we speculated before it came out, there might be some softness because it's not a novel. Um, we can't compare directly because we don't have sort of an AB universe where there's another universe just like ours where this is a novel version. Um, but uh, AB universe is a good show title. Um, I was just <laughs> writing it down. <laughs> uh, so, so, so we don't know if it would have performed better if it were a novel or a novel version of the same story, or if it were you know more of a true continuation. Um, so anyway, I, really interested to see. How, what kind of effects Scholastic, their year-over-year comps are going to be mm-hmm. all screwed up. Um, right. I'm sure they're going to cry into their giant bowl of cash oh, about yes. their, you know, their year-over-year so comps being screwed up. So hard to Scholastic the year that you have a new Harry Potter book. Um, if, if, you're, have, if you haven't read the book yet, um, you might want to. We're doing a special episode of this show, as we've been doing, talking about The Cursed Child. It'll be spoiler-filled, um, and that should be coming out pretty soon. I'm not going to say more about it because it's not in the can yet, um, and there's no better jinx for a podcast recording than to, to give details about what's going to happen before it's happened. Um, but that should be coming out soon, so I'm just saying if you if you want to get The Cursed Child under your belt, you can, I whipped through it in about two hours. I mean, it didn't take much time at all. It is a play. It's very readable and quick. I will save all of my thoughts and feelings um, for that show. But there's a lot to talk about. Um, yeah, you have a great guest for that yeah, show. I'm, I'm very excited, to very to excited to do that. I'm supposed to be recording later today. Um, so that's big. I mean, it's a big deal. Um, and we'll screw up. That will screw up, I guess, 2017 comps, right? When we're looking mm-hmm. at when we're looking at uh, Q3 results next year, there's going to be all these caveats about everybody's math is going to everyone's going math is going to be all right, and that's how it works. I was reading this. I, don't, I think I talked to the story about the show. I was reading this book about the history of Random House, and when it got bought by RCA in the fifties, that was the first time it had to report to a corporate overlord, right? Quarterly earnings, where before publishers didn't really worry about quarterly earnings, um, and uh, 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 Bob Bernstein, who was the CEO, had to report to the CEO of RCA about quarterly results. And he'd have to explain, like, you know, this quarter, last quarter we had a Michener novel out, 
And so, you know, we don't have one this quarter, so that's when to see. And he's like, so, and the the, <laughs> the CEO of RC is like, well, then what do we do to get a Michener novel out every quarter? And it's just, <laughs> you know, you know, that's just explaining these 800-page books of historical, right. you, you can't produce them every quarter. No. Um, so there's a lot about publishing that doesn't lend itself to a standard corporate quarterly result um, model. Um, and that's my story from 1950s uh, publishing economics. Let's- Jump back to 2016, yeah. and I'll tell you about our next sponsor. Let's do our next How about sponsor. That? Thank you. Uh, we've got The Beauty of Darkness, which is the third book in the Remnant Chronicles series by Mary E. Pearson. Uh, Leah and Rafe have escaped Venda. And the path before them is winding and dangerous. So what will happen now? Uh, this isn't just the third book. It is the final book in the Remnant Chronicles. It is not to be missed. Mary E. Pearson is a New York Times bestselling author. She combines intrigue, suspense, romance, and action that makes The Beauty of Darkness a riveting page turner you won't be able to put down. Uh, Fierce Reads is promoting this. And uh, so it's YA. And if you are looking for a series you know, to sort of binge through here at the end of summer. This one satisfies O'Neill's razor. It does. It's done. The series is now complete. uh, So you could get all three and pick them up, you know, go through them in a weekend or in a couple weekends as you're sitting. If you're doing what I'm doing, you're sitting inside in the air conditioning, Mm. avoiding the dog days and reading lots of books. Uh, So again, it's The Beauty of Darkness by Mary E. Pearson. It is the third book in the Remnant Chronicles series. Cool. And thanks to them for sponsoring. Remnant Chronicles, thanks to sponsoring the show. Yeah. Uh, b- breaking news I just saw this morning. Um, speaking of O'Neill's Razor, O'Neill's Razor is not happy about this, though it's good news no. for fans of the series, is that um, Saba Tahir's Ember in the Ashes mm-hmm. former trilogy is now oh. a... Uh, I, I don't think penitentiary is the right word for a, a, a series of five novels, but whatever, whatever it is, <laughs> there's two pentology? more. Pentology? Uh, pentagram? That's not right. Pentagon. Yeah, these are all right. Um, <laughs> two more books in the series. So oh, O'Neill's Razor very is news. very unhappy about Amanda is going to be so excited. Yeah, she is going to be so excited. Um, but alas and alack, uh, O'Neill's Razor is going to have to wait. It's going to have to look for something else to shave, I guess. Where do you want to go? You want to hear about weird news? Yeah, let's do some weird news. I'm feeling a little punchy suddenly. This is, yeah, me too, man. This is head scratchy news. Uh, A professor at the University of London, his name is Martin Paul Eve. Mm -hmm. Yes, Martin Paul Eve. Uh, He's at Burbank at the University of London. He was writing a paper on Cloud Atlas, the novel by David Mitchell. And he was working from a UK version of the paperback, which is published by Scepter, and from a Kindle edition of the novel. And then he realized going through this process as he was, you know, cross-referencing that he was unable to find phrases in the ebook that he could distinctly remember from the paperback. Hmm. So then he started comparing and he compared this US and UK edition of the book and realized that they were quite different hmm. from one another. Um, I've never heard of this before. He's He wrote a journal article that mm-hmm. came out last week. Um, so we have a piece in The Guardian that we'll link to in the show notes. It contains a link to the journal article that he wrote. And there are 30 pages of examples of like yeah. significant differences, not just in like specific words, but in the, in the narrative of hmm. the book, which I think this is surprising and, you know, kind of weird um 
The U.S. editor, uh, David Ebershoff, took over and Mitchell was presented with a substantial list of changes for the U.S. edition. And he said, due to my inexperience at that stage in my three book career, it hadn't occurred to me that having two versions of the same novel on either side of the Atlantic mm-hmm. raised thorny questions over which is definitive. So I didn't go to the trouble of making sure that the American changes were applied to the British version and vice versa. Um, That's so... The, so I guess the root of the root here is that he had two editors at Random well, yeah, House, yeah. one for the UK and one US, which makes yeah, no which, sense at all. But that's like – it's pretty common. Like, I, it, Well, yeah, from, it's common, but also co- that's commonly dumb then because right, – yes. I mean that seems – I mean whatever efficiencies which, you're supposed to have as a huge publisher, I would think asking an author to edit for two different editors for the same house – Yeah. Uh, or, is, like is principal among them. It's just so crazy. I've read some interviews with Margaret Atwood and I believe her Canadian Random House editor, but she's also published, you know, by Random House in the US and has a different editor here. And I've wondered, like, how does that work? Yeah, what's the but, canonical editor? Like, does someone right, but actually work on the manuscript and everyone I else think, just has to bite their tongue or what? Or like, does the primary one, like, does the first house that acquired the thing do the major editing and then all of the other ones do just like stuff, you know, like, okay, we've got to change this word to the UK spelling or this phrase doesn't mean anything in this culture, so you need to pick a different reference. Mm. Or, you know, I could see that kind of stuff, but like 30 pages worth of examples of differences and that it somehow fell to the author, like it was supposed to be David Mitchell's job to think of and then manage tracking the changes. Like he says further down in the piece, it's a lot of faff. You have to keep track of your changes and then send them along to whichever side is currently behind. And (laughs) I love this. As I have a low faff tolerance threshold, I'm still not very (laughs) conscientious about it. And apparently now his US and UK editors have their assistants work on it closely. But so like, there's not a canonical definitive Mm -hmm. version of Cloud Atlas. And this is, I think this would be a weird news story for any novel, oh. but it's especially... <laughs> Cloud Atlas, yes. It's especially weird for something as tangly as Cloud Atlas. Like, it requires enough tracking of the characters and the timelines and the different dialects that the characters are speaking and, like, all of that stuff. Um, it's a reading experience that you have to do some work for. Mm-hmm. Um that it sort of broke my brain to think about like, wait, there, I could have to do that twice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's see. Um, this is, this is Mitchell saying being alive. I'd ask readers to view the difference between the cloud Atlas is less like a director's cut versus the original release. And more like two very slightly different versions of the same mm-hmm. song recorded with the same musicians in the same room at the same session with differences of only a few notes and a few words, which you can only spot if you concentrate intently in this context, I don't think it matters which is definitive, but which works. Uh, for me, in the case of Cloud Atlas, both work. They're very interesting um, story. And uh, actually, there is an AB Universe. This one's an <laughs> AB Universe. It is. it is. That is definitely the show title yeah. now. <laughs> you, have, you have two versions of it. And Mitchell says, because the American one sold so, so much more, that might become the de facto definitive uh, version just because well, it's the one that's you know like, there's, more, there's more readers of. Are they going to update the UK version now? Or are they going to bring them in line with each other now? I don't know. Or are we just going to keep living with these differences? Like, there are people who just are super fans of Cloud yep. Atlas. And if you are one of those people, I want to know how you feel about the existence of this. Yeah, is it is enough if you've read the only the UK like, or US version? Are you interested in seeking out? I mean, there, it's, you know, it's a 600-page book, so it's 
5%. Still, 5% of a book, it seems like a lot. It seems like it's a lot. I was trying to think this morning about like, if this were a book that I really loved, like what if it turned out that there were two versions of like Beloved or Mm. Gilead? Oh, I'd read two versions of Gilead. I would read two versions of it, but then like, wouldn't you just, how would you ever do anything with your time after that other than (laughs) just bouncing between the two versions trying to figure out? Well, now you know what Shakespeare scholars do because like there's, (laughs) you know, there's multiple versions in print of, in different quartos have different versions of Hamlet. There's no canonical version of Hamlet. Just decide which one you want to do. Like Kenneth Branagh's like that long four hour adaptation is basically taking all the pieces of anything that's ever been put in Hamlet. Um, and can be reasonably attributed to Shakespeare and putting it all in one thing. You have different versions that pick and choose. And it's sort of, you know, Ham- Hamlet's more like a, an atom where it has like electron clouds around it. Like there's no mm-hmm. edge, but, you know, you can recognize it as Hamlet. I think that's how something like this uh, is going to be. In- I mean, it's different enough that a guy who had read, one- I mean, again, it's an academic who's paying maybe a different kind of attention than than a more casual reader. But just his brain said, wait a minute. Like he wasn't putting them through mm-hmm. textual analysis or OCR software or something and sort of trying to do find and replace and, and text matching. It was just his own sensibility, his, his bells went off. It's like, wait a minute, this yeah. is different. Um, which says to me that's a substantial difference, that if, if someone reading both of them um, without knowing beforehand that there were differences was confused, um, mm-hmm. that's a pretty good signal that there's something there. Now, it, it, what I'm, the paper does – we, we haven't read the paper, but I wonder if the paper argues for the meaning. Like, are they substantial no. enough that they change some way you understand the book or some themes or, you know, get into real, real English professor stuff there? Um, but interesting to know. Okay. Uh, let's see. Where do we want to go? Oh, let's go to POTUS. Yes. POTUS. Um, President Obama the, – the White House released – President Obama's summer reading list, um, as if Colson Whitehead, you know, it's too bad he's not getting any pub for the Underground Railroad. I, because, but luckily, <laughs> President Obama's here to bail him out. His 2016 summer reading list is Barbarian Days by William Finnegan, uh, The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, H is for Hawk by Helen McDonald, The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins, and Seven Eves, is that Seven Eves? Seven Eves is by Neil Stevenson, which is, it's a palindrome word where on both sides of the middle N is the word seven. Um, and on the back end, it's reversed. So it's S-E-V-E-N-E-V-E-S, um, sci-fi, sci-fi book by Neil Stevenson. Um, doesn't say much more about it than that's what he's reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I, well... I don't know. What do you think? You could do a I Man, I think this is a good list. Very good list. Um, Barbarian Days won the Pulitzer last yep. year, and you hand-sold it to me and Powell's. Oh, that's right. Last I week. Did. Like, this is a very Shinsky O'Neill-approved reading Yes, list. very much so. Save, I have to say, for Girl on the Train, uh, yes. which I DNF'd. Um, and I haven't I read the Stevenson, it, though. Like it's, it. it's, a, it's, a, it's a book I've long I've been interested in, so I, it has a, a little bit of that, too. Yeah. H's for Hawk. Underground, Underground Railroad, of course. Excellent novel, H is for Hawk. We both loved. Um, this is a good, you know. It's a like, good. It's a. It's. I will say it's, it's kind well of rounded. a safe list. Yeah, it's that's the kind true. of list like, that you and I are like. This is a great list, right? But it's not one we're like, oh, huh? You know, it's not. Yeah. It's not a thinker of a list. 
I'm currently reading a book that I picked up at Powell's last week that Lisa Lucas recommended when she was on the best books of the year so mm. far special episode that we did last month called um, Invisible Man Got the Whole World mm -hmm. Watching by Michael Denzel Smith. Um, and it really feels to me like it's a cousin of Between the World and Me and of The Fire this time. Yeah. But it was put out by a small publisher. And if it had come out from one of the big publishers, it would have a ton of money and a ton of publicity. And I would like to see that on President Obama's reading list. Um, yeah, it's, you know, this is pretty standard for this POTUS. Like, it's solid. Yeah, interesting. It's good. It's real smart. Like, he's a smart guy. Um, Ain't nothing wrong with it. But he's, it's not like, this This list is not going bungee jumping. Like, it's not taking any, he doesn't take any big risks. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what the big risk one would be. I guess something like... Well, you're you're uh, you, you were talking about the the long division you were talking yeah. to me about. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that would be one that or mm -hmm. citizen, right? We, that you just mentioned, where it's not overtly. I mean, underground railroad is political. Make no mistake about that. That is political. Um, but you could see a much more politicized list. And even last year's list for last summer, there was the six extinction, which is about climate change um, mm -hmm. between he the did world have and the me. Tanahasi, right? Yeah. So this one's a little. This is uh, this is uh, lame duck. Obama reading list, maybe. Yeah, I want to know that Obama read like Men We Reaped. Oh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, or, but it's uh, a good Missoula, list. Right. Yes. You know, some right. of those things like that. Um, but it's a good list, a really good list. Uh, it, it is, you know, these are political. Interestingly, there is, like I said, there's no context how these got picked, you know, what order. Uh, it, no Goodreads ratings uh, for these from from, from POTUS or the White House. <laughs> right, um, just I hear the really books. need him to keep, like to get a Goodreads account or start a blog or something. I want to do what Bill Gates is doing. Yeah, when uh, he's done being the president, because I want to know what he thinks about these books that he's reading and how he picked them. Because there's like there's so little information, as in there's basically none. Yeah. on this about where the selections came from that you could. A skeptical person could say, you know, this was well researched in advance and he, they're conveying a certain message or whatever um, with these selections. And that may very well be the case. Mm -hmm. um, but I he, he is known to be a book lover and I would just, you know, love I want more of the President Obama interviewing Marilyn yeah. Robinson. But like Obama sits down with Colson Whitehead to talk about the Underground Railroad <sighs> or with Helen McDonald to talk about H's for Hawk. Like he's not going to get turned down for interviews. No. Well, I, I linked it in last week in Critical Link. It's not in the show notes that, you know, Bill Gates, bless his heart, um, reviews books for his own site. Like he, he, it's, he, he so it's, great. it's great. And he recently, and speaking of Neil Stevenson, he picked up um, Seven Evs, I guess is what mm. I'm calling it. Uh, sure. I'm just going to stick with my mispronunciation if that's what it is. Um, and he did this 360 VR interview video <laughs> with Neil oh, Stevenson. Oh man, I missed that. Which I don't have a VR setup, so I but it is weird, uh very strange. Like it's very Bill Gatesy uh to like screw around with technology um in that way and, and mess with it. But like he, he Bill Gates is a hardcore book nerd who's like shouting it from the rooftops. He's like he'll release a list of twelve books I want you to read this summer or twelve things about like he does the listicle with a thoughtful paragraph. A really interesting. Um, some version of that uh, from the president would be please, really, really interesting please. to see. You know, even if he just gets a Snapchat, Michelle is so good on Snapchat. Oh. If we could get like the POTUS Snapchat mm -hmm. book review, yep. like I'm, that's all I need. That, that's that's all I need. Um, <laughs> anyway, let's do our let's do our last sponsor. We got a couple a uh, couple of things to end the show. This is How to Ruin Everything uh, by George Watsky. 
Are you a sensible, universally competent individual? Are you tired of the crushing monotony of leaping gracefully from one lily pad of success to the next? Are you sick of doing everything right? Well, Jeff, is this book about you? It kind of is, I have to say. Um, I mean, because the first thing slam poets think about when a uh, subject is, is me. So this is by slam poet turned hip-hop artist George Watsky. Um, he chronicles the small triumphs over humiliation that make, like, make life bearable and how he has come to accept defeat as a necessary part of the journey toward personal progress. The essays in How to Ruin Everything range from the absurd, how he became an international ivory smuggler, what? to the comical, his middle school rap battle dominance, to I'm the revelatory, his experiences with epilepsy. Yet all are delivered with the type of linguistic dexterity and self-awareness one Watsky devoted fans across the globe. Globe. Alternatively, ribald and emotionally resonant, How to Ruin Everything announces a versatile writer with a promising career ahead. He's been praised by everyone from John Green to Russell Simmons to Lynn Manuel Miranda, which I guess is the blurb of the moment. If you can yep. pick your blurb, you want Miranda these days, um, who called the collection funny, subversive, and able to excavate such brutally honest sentences that you find yourself nodding your head in wonder and recognition. So that is How to Ruin Everything by George Watsky. I have to say, one of the more in-read, um, interesting-sounding books uh, we've had the yeah. pleasure of doing a spot for on the show. Yes, the small triumphs over humiliation that make life bearable. Like that, it, this had me there. Yes, it's like, oh, I know that moment. So just <laughs> let me hit the let me hit the name again. How to Ruin Everything by George Watsky. W A T S K Y. That sounds awesome. All right. Let's let's do two more. What do we got All here? Right. What we do got you Heroes do? of the Week. Let's do it. Tell week. me about Heroes of the Week. We've got public librarians, you know, always heroes. But on July 21st, um, the Movement for Black Lives National Day of Action, a team of four public librarians with backgrounds in social justice launched a new initiative called Libraries for Black Lives, mm -hmm. the number four. So it's L4BL. Uh, they are named Jessica Ann Bratt. She's a branch manager at Grand Rapids Public Library in Michigan. Sarah Lawton is a neighborhood library supervisor at the Madison Public Library in Wisconsin. Mm. Amita Loniol is the learning experience experiences manager at the Skokie Public Library in Skokie, Illinois. And Amy Sani does adult literacy and lifelong learning as a librarian at the Oakland Public Library in California. So from all over the United States, uh, they joined forces earlier in the summer to create a website that would bring together library-based advocates who want to support the ideals and activism behind the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, the idea is that this yeah, can be a united library effort to demonstrate unequivocal professional commitment to social justice and equity. Mm. Um, this is so cool. There's a nice, like there is a long piece here on Library Journal that we'll link to in the show uh, notes about the social justice roots uh, that these women have brought to uh, two libraries for Black Lives, how they are working to be allies to the Black community. And it ties in, I don't know if we talked about it on the show or not, but it ties into, um, there have been some really great pieces lately by librarians about about how, you know, librarianship is essentially, you know, nonpartisan, but that doesn't mm -hmm. mean it's apolitical. Right. Um, and that librarians uh, often and for a long time have thought of themselves as advocates. And part of the job is to serve every member of your community, to be knowledgeable about, you know, any kind of book that you could be asked about. And that means reading widely and diversely and being able to serve the members of the Black community. And they're sort of taking this to the next level. Um, very cool, uh, a very cool thing to see librarians, you know, stepping out. And it's, I think it's worth saying out loud that uh, rather than, you know, just quietly in my head, right. that 
Um, it's this is not a, an action without risks. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on what community you work in and serve in your libraries, making a statement about Black Lives Matter, um, which should not be questioned or controversial at all, or building a display of books that say Black Lives Matter um, can be questioned and it can be controversial. And we've uh, come across stories of librarians who have had, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, who have uh, sort of had confrontations with patrons who didn't like seeing that in their library. And so then part of the librarian's job is to educate about what the movement really is and why it exists. Um, these librarians are, are taking a big step. They're using their voices and their positions uh, to do a lot of good. And they, my hat is off. Um, definitely heroes of the week. This might be one of my like top hero mm. of the week stories for the year so far. I think it's very cool. It's worth remembering too. I mean, I do see some people saying, well, the library shouldn't be political and so on. That's what, And it's a criticism perspective, I should say. I mm. understand in a way Except for the fact that it's already political, um, yeah. all the way down to the to the basement of, you know, how much funding does a library get? What kind of books do they offer? What kind of services do they offer? What kind of hours are they open? Like all of those things, at, at first blush, might seem apolitical, but they have political consequences. And and I think acknowledging that, you know anything in government is going to be political and local government, especially. And when it comes to the dissemination and curation of ideas, it is political because they decide, you know, what books get bought, what get, mm-hmm. what books get put on the shelves, what kind of books get bought, um, what they recommend, how they serve their, how they serve their community. And so this is really making the implicit explicit in a, in a more proactive way. Um, uh, really interesting to see them doing that. And, and I think, worth the con the public conversation uh, it definitely would inspire maybe we'll end on speaking of librarians kind of a fun one i'll link mm-hmm. to this today the librarian olympics um, oh i didn't see that in, in the dayton ohio the university of dayton library staff competed in the inaugural library olympic olympics developed by the professional development team um the day featured journal jenga journal toss cart <laughs> racing Book balancing, speed sorting, and a scavenger hunt played out on Twitter. Amazing. They were randomly assigned to strategize for each game. Uh, There's a link. I'll put a link in the show notes. There's some pictures. Uh, It looks like they had a lot of fun out there on the lawn um, doing library. Oh, there was, yeah, they they did a race where they had to balance a book on their head. Um, They got some of those library carts out on the sidewalk, uh, and a good time was had by all. That's awesome. A good YouTube rabbit hole to go down is a search for a library cart drill team. Yes. Where which is exactly what it sounds like. Yes. Librarians doing synchronized dancing essentially with their library cards. It's so excellent. <laughs> uh, let's call that our show for the week. There's no better note. We, to we, end yeah, on. we got we got two days till we record again, so we got to find some new stories. Oh <laughs> we got we got to go. I Come on, internet! That Come that on, internet! Happening. Let's get to some book stories for next week. As always, you can find show notes at bookriot.com/slash/listen. You can navigate to this and all of the other Book Riot podcasts. Uh, quick shout out, Book Riot Live! Uh, you can get twenty bucks off your VIP ticket to our. Book Nerd Bash, November twelfth and thirteenth. Go to bookriotlive.com. Use offer code Wheelhouse, all one word to get a discounted ticket there. Thanks so much to our sponsors uh, for sponsoring the show. We had PRH Audio. Uh, we had How to Ruin Everything. And then what was the third one? Help me, help the me. Beauty help. of Darkness. Beauty of Darkness, the, the Remnant Chronicles, the last book there. Um, thanks too much, so much for sponsor, uh, sponsoring the show. You can email us at podcast at bookriot.com. We're especially interested in 
Oprah book bleed through, you know, to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, like in what bookstores, notable bookstores that are worth a side trip uh, on their own accord. Thanks so much. If you guys are listening, Rebecca, we'll talk to you later. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.